Welcome back, everyone, and thank you for joining us for today's podcast from Dublin First Baptist Church in Dublin, North Carolina. We hope you'll be encouraged today as you listen to our message. For more information, please visit our website at www.dublinfbc.org. That's www.dublinfbc.org. Now let's join the congregation of Dublin First Baptist as we listen to the preaching of God's Word. We turn to Mark 10 again, what we, what we had just read, Mark 10, verses 17 to 31. And uh, we'll continue our straightway series through the Gospel of Mark, this time looking at Jesus' teaching about gain through loss. In this morning's section of Scripture, it's one of my favorite accounts in all of the Gospels of, of what Jesus taught, because it, it explains so much about uh, God's plan of salvation. It explains it so clearly, how we can be rescued from a life of sin and its destiny away from God in hell. And with wonderfully simple clarity, uh, it explains how we can be saved, how we can know for sure that we've gained eternal life and heaven with God forever. I also love uh, the reminder that Jesus gives us here at the end that anyone who has denied self and taken up their cross and followed him in faith alone uh, to be saved, honestly, haven't really denied self at all. That's what we just sang about. Uh, as Pastor Stephen Lawson says, we've traded dirt for diamonds, haven't we? I mean, the rewards are, are way bigger than anything that we've laid down. And what a beautiful description in verses 29 to 30 of those rewards that are ours when we turn from sin and turn to Jesus to be saved. We read it already. Before we study it verse by verse, let's ask the Lord's blessing on our time together. Heavenly Father, I pray that as we go to your word now and we look at this message from our Savior about what it means to be saved and the great rewards that are ours when we do trust you as Savior. Lord, I pray that if there's one here today or later who will be here in the second service who might be watching, Lord, that they've never trusted in you, that today will be the day of salvation for them. Lord, even if this gets on YouTube like we usually put them on and months later somebody listens to this, should you tarry, Lord, I pray that this gospel message would also uh, be used of your Holy Spirit to draw them to faith. Lord, for us who have, who've already trusted in Christ as Savior, I pray that the promises you give us, especially at the end here uh, of this passage, would just fuel, fuel our faith, would motivate us to stay the course that while we might not have everything here in this world, um, we haven't traded anything when we've turned to you. We've only, we've only gained. We've only been blessed in that for eternity. And Lord, I pray that we carry that message to those around us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So in verse 17, we're introduced to a potential disciple of Jesus Christ. Verse 17 says, And when he, when Jesus was gone forth into the way, there came one running, and he kneeled to him and asked him, Good master, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? That was this man's concern. 
and the gospel accounts of this uh, particular potential of Jesus Christ, potential disciple of Jesus Christ. Um, he's commonly known as the rich young ruler. It says later in this passage in verse 22 that, that Mark defines him as rich. In Luke's gospel, uh, he defines him as a ruler. Matthew says he was young. And I love that description. I'm so glad uh, that there are young people who still want to know about the most important things in life. And their world, their world is filled with distractions and with temptations like never before. Yet God in his word it can still penetrate all that clutter, all that noise. And sometimes, in various circumstances um, that come into their life, they will cause young people to begin to consider what is to be of their utmost concern, what should be of their utmost concern. And that was this young man right here. As Jesus was traveling, we find out that he came running. He came running to Jesus with a matter that was of great concern to him. He knelt before Jesus and he says, Good master, what do I need to do? to inherit eternal life. Is there any more important matter to be concerned about? There's not. Not in this life. Where you're going to spend the next, that, that's why. Uh, that's why he's concerned. It, it's temporal. This life is temporal. That's why. Um, as, as we look around us, even right here, everything we're seeing right here, uh, these pews, this pulpit, this beautiful building, as you go out, that car you get in and drive home, drive to lunch in, uh, it is temporal. Now, every one that you see here, not temporal. You're eternal. I'm eternal. Every person that you meet this week when you head out of here, they are a person who will spend eternity somewhere. And this young man had recognized that truth, and he was concerned. He was concerned about his future eternal destiny, and we ought to be as well. We don't know. We don't know when we're going to enter that state. We're not promised the next second of life, let alone tomorrow. James 4.14 describes even a long life here on this earth as but a vapor. And the Apostle Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 6.2 that we should share this young man's concern. We should turn in faith to Jesus to be saved because we don't know when our opportunity to do so will come to an end. God says in 2 Corinthians 6.2, I tell you now, now is the time of God's favor. I tell you now is the day of salvation. So as I said earlier, and we're going to learn here in a little bit, uh, this young man, he was wealthy. <laughs> he had great possessions, that's how Mark puts it, yet he still had a concern about where he would spend eternity. He wanted to be sure. He wanted to know where he was going to spend eternity, whether he'd inherit eternal life. And, and this is a human condition. A lot of people may seem distracted, and I think that they are. Uh, from this. Satan loves to distract people from this reality, from being concerned about it. But every single person that's ever been born realizes that this isn't all there is. Now, they might not say, I'm trying to seek Jesus or go to Jesus to figure it out, but they know. They want to know what the reason for life is, what the purpose in life is. God says in Ecclesiastes 3.11 that he has set eternity in the human heart. We know that this isn't all there is. And if you haven't addressed the reality of where you're going to spend eternity, I pray that you become concerned about it, that, that you turn to Christ and faith to be saved so you can be assured of eternal life, so you could be like this young man who, I want to know, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And I pray that you learn that it's only, only through Jesus, and that this morning, that right now is a time of God's favor, right now is a day of salvation. In verses 18 to 20, 
we got a picture of this man's confusion. He's not alone. So many people are confused about this vital manner, uh, matter. How, how do we know for sure that we have eternal life? How do we inherit eternal life? And so uh, the initial response of Jesus to this young man is verse 18. It, it's in the form of a question. Jesus said unto him, why do you call me good? He said, good master. Why, why do you call me good? There is none good but one and that is God. Now, Jesus was not saying that he, he wasn't good. Was Jesus good? Yeah. I mean, he was perfect. Uh, he never sinned. And Jesus was not saying here that he was not God. He, he is God. He, he was God. He is God. He was God in human form come down to make possible God's way of salvation and give us eternal life. So why did Jesus say what he says here in verse 18? Well, he did it because of why this man was confused. Jesus said what he said here in verse 18 in this, in this question, to challenge this man's faulty perception of, of what good actually means. This man thought it was something that was measured by human achievement. It's not. There's only one standard of good. That's God. Not human achievement. And, you know, in a minute, we're going to look in verse 20, where this man describes himself as an awfully good person. I mean, he thought he was perfect, really. He apparently was a pretty good moral fella salt-of-the-earth kind of guy. Now, he wasn't perfect. We're going to find that out, too. And in comparison to the actual standard of good, God, well, he fell. He fell fall short. You know, um, all of us are. That's what God tells us about every single human. Romans 3.23, right? All, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And then in verse 19, Jesus tells them this. You know the commandments? Don't commit adultery. Don't kill. Don't steal. Don't bear false witness. Defraud not. Honor thy father and thy mother. Right? So Jesus tells him, he, he gives out a few, a few of these, uh, of the list in the Ten Commandments, um, mostly the ones in the second half that apply more to how we relate to each other. And why did Jesus do that? Can we be saved by keeping God's commandments? No. Because we can't keep God's commandments perfectly. That's Jesus' whole point in responding this way. He is trying to get someone who believes that they are a pretty good person, somebody whose, whose good deeds probably do outweigh their bad if you put them in a scale and on a human level from a human perspective. He's trying to get him to recognize that that's not God's standard. That's not God's way of salvation. See, he would have to be 100% perfect. Never sin once in any way. That's impossible. There's never been a human being who ever did. And so when Jesus lists these Ten Commandments, part of the Old Testament law, God didn't give us the Old Testament law, his commandments, so that we could be saved by obeying them, but so that we could see that we need to be saved because we can't. <laughs> we can't obey them because we don't obey them. That's what God says about the Old Testament law in Romans 7, 7. Let me just read that for you. It says, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. Nay, I had not known sin, but by the law. And so it's there we get an understanding of why God gave us the law, why God gave us these commandments. The most important thing that they do for us. Yes, we're supposed to obey them. Yes, we will be blessed if we do. But the most important thing that God's law does for us is it shows us our need for his grace to us 
in Jesus Christ. That's what Martin Luther said. He said, the law discovers the disease. They can't do anything about addressing it. It just diagnoses it. What does? What's the remedy? Martin Luther said the gospel. The gospel gives us the remedy. It's Jesus Christ. He lived the perfect life that we couldn't live. He paid for our sins on the cross so we wouldn't have to. Now in verse 19, Jesus listed out a few of these commandments. And in verse 20, this man responds to the list. Let's read that. The man answered and said back to Jesus, Master, all of these I have observed from my youth. So he follows Jesus' earlier instruction here uh, and dropping the, the good from the good master part here. He just says master. And he tells Jesus, Jesus, I've observed. I have faithfully kept all those things that you said there in verse 19, even from the time I was a little dude, little kid, done it all. And he might have. Jesus don't argue with him. We know that much as he goes on. There's no argument from Jesus here, whether he did or whether he not didn't, because that's not even the point. But if you look at that list of commandments back in verse 19, especially the second half of the Ten Commandments, there's one that seems to me to be conspicuously absent, at least clear in a clear statement. Can you think about what might not be there? I believe this was intentional by Jesus. What about thou shalt not covet? I shall not covet. So even if what this man said was true about obeying all those commandments that Jesus listed in verse 19, and he had done it perfectly, even since the time he was a little kid, Jesus knew where this man fell short. Jesus knew that this man, like every single one of us, uh, had at least one problematic desire. Let's look at the response of our Messiah, Jesus Christ, in verse 21, says, And Jesus, beholding him, loved him. And he said unto him, One thing thou lackest, go your way. Sell whatever you have and give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven. And then come, take up thy cross and follow me. So verse 21 tells us that Jesus was beholding him. The Greek word emblepo is descriptive of both penetrating, discerning gaze that sees everything clearly. Jesus had done that. Jesus knew what this man's problem was. He knew what his struggle with sin was. It was with riches, with the things of this world and loving them. And then verse 21 goes on to tell us that because Jesus loved him, he told him the truth. That to come to faith in Jesus, that to receive salvation, to inherit eternal life, that this man would need to let go, let go of his problematic desire. Don't misunderstand. It is faith alone and God's grace alone to us and Jesus Christ alone. That is the only thing that saves us. But it is a faith alone that forsakes all and trusts him. It's a faith that has actions. It's a faith that works out that salvation. It's a faith that forsakes all and turns to receive by faith Christ alone. Not him and riches. Not him in a relationship not him and all the rest of those things that he did perfectly in verse 19. No, not him in words, just him alone. And that's what Jesus tells this young man in verse 21. Now, he isn't telling us that this prescription is required for every single person. This isn't a new addendum to the gospel where you have to believe in Jesus Christ and then every single person that ever wants to be a Christian, you need to go home today, have a big yard sale, and then donate it to the poor, and then you'll be saved. That's not what Jesus says here. He's telling this particular individual, he knew what this man's problematic desire was, what was keeping him from saving faith, from inheriting eternal life, and he knows what mine is. He knows what my obstacle is. 
and he knows what your obstacle is. And it may have nothing to do with riches or the things of this world. It may be something else. Jesus says to this man, and he says to us, you have to let it go. I don't know what it is for you. I know what it is for me. I got a few it's. You've got to let it go. Everything else. And then take up your cross and follow me. That's what he says. He says, this is the faith that saves. That's the belief that is born out in your behavior. And what did the man do? We see the rejection of the message in verse 22. And he was sad at that saying, and he went away grieved, for he had great possessions. It says this man was sad at what Jesus said. He left Jesus right then and there. Didn't want any part of what Jesus said he had to do to inherit eternal life. The faith that Jesus described here. Didn't want any part of it. Wasn't willing to forsake all and trust him alone. Because he had great possessions. They were his obstacle to faith. The cause of him rejecting the gospel message. The cause of him rejecting salvation and eternal life. He went away sad. That's so sad, isn't it? It's sad that all he was was sad. There's important truth right there for us. Remorse isn't repentance. Do you understand that? Remorse is important. You have to feel sorry. You have that guilt that comes. That's good. But remorse by itself, feeling sad, this isn't repentance. Remorse isn't saving faith. Look, on that coming judgment day, there's going to be many people that are standing before the throne of Jesus Christ, seconds away from eternity in hell, and they will be sad too. That's all they'll be. They're sad. He needed to be more than troubled. This man needed to turn. Instead, he turned away from Christ. He rejected the gospel. He rejected salvation. He rejected eternal life. What was his problem? Great possessions. Not just having them, but he loved them. It was a love for the things of this world. It was faith in them as a source of joy and satisfaction in life instead of Jesus. And what's yours? We all have at least one. Every human being got some obstacle that Jesus asked us to let go of. To lay down. Is it the same? The love for things of this world? Now, I tell this to our teenagers often. And mom and dad probably need to hear it too. I know I need to hear it too. Jesus doesn't have any problem with you having things. He doesn't. None at all. But he has a big problem with things having you. Big difference there. Very big difference. Do they? What does that mean when things have you? I mean, that's a cute saying, but what does that mean? Well, could you let them go? I don't know. They got you. What if you lose that job? Is your world wrecked? I mean, that's disappointing. Is your face shaking? Will you fall away? Then it has you. What about the car? What about, you name it, that toy? What about that relationship? It's a good thing. All these things are good things. None of them are sinful even of themselves. But do they have you? Something God gave you, does it have you? This is what Jesus is presenting to us here. Maybe it's not that. Maybe it's something else. Maybe it's someone else. Young people like this man and not so young people, um, there is nothing on this world, in this life, that's worth more than your soul. There's nothing that is worth not being in heaven with Jesus forever. Nothing here. So let it loose. Whatever is an obstacle to you coming to faith in Jesus, whatever is an obstacle to you continuing in faith in Jesus, we've got to let it go. And verse 23 says, As this man left Jesus grieving, he was sad 
as he didn't get the answer that he wanted, Jesus looked round about and he said to his disciples, how hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of God? Verse 24, and his disciples were astonished at his words. But Jesus answered again and said unto them, children, how hard it is for them that trust in riches to enter into the kingdom of God. So Jesus seizes this powerful teaching moment with his disciples, and that includes you and I here this morning. Jesus repeated what he said here because he knew his disciples were astonished in verse 23. And then they went from being astonished to later it says they were astonished beyond uh, measure. They're confused out of their minds at what Jesus said. And Jesus uses this humorous comparison. It was humorous to them uh, in Hebrew idiom, like a common saying at the time, uh, to depict the impossible. It takes the largest animal that was known to them in that culture. A camel, and you're going to put it through the smallest thing that they could possibly think of. Is it possible? No. I can't fit a camel in through there, no matter how hard I shove and budge, can't do it. Humanly, it's impossible. It's definitely not typical, very rare. And then verses 26 to 31, it talks about our promised dividend. For those who do turn to Christ, who do let go, this is, this is what he offers us. There's this power in the gospel of grace because uh, as Tanya read earlier, and as we see uh, in verse 26, when they're astonished out their minds, they say, well, Jesus, then who can be saved if, if it's hard for rich people? As if it's hard for people who trust in riches to, to go and inherit the kingdom of heaven, to come to saving faith. Well, then who could be saved? And Jesus says, it is impossible with men. But, but not with God. There is power in the gospel of grace. The reason they were so astonished is because they thought that wealth and having great possessions here, they were a sign of God's favor on your life. They were evidence that you were right with God. So of all the people that came to Jesus to follow him, this man, based on their understanding, this man should have been a shoe-in. He should have been easily accepted as a, a disciple of Jesus. And they say, who can be saved? And we got the same problem of confusion in Christianity today is, is very prevalent right now in a false teaching called prosperity theology. There's churches all over right now this morning that are teaching this very thing, that you having things, that God giving you things is evidence of his favor in your life, that you're right with him. Proof, supposed proof you're living for him. Listen, if that's the case, and God hated the apostle Paul, didn't he? You hated him. Oh, he was not living right for God. Look at our own Savior. Foxes have nests. I don't have any place to lay my head. Our own Savior, the one we claim to follow, was, was, was poor while he was here. And, and I don't see how this can be evidence of God's favor because these very same things, that is what Satan promises to those who follow him. How can they be evidence of God's favor? Now, even so. Are there wealthy people that God calls by his grace to turn to Jesus in faith? Yeah. Yeah, we have examples throughout the Gospels here. Verse 27 tells us it's possible. Jesus says, with men, it's impossible, not with God. For with God, all things are possible. But it's only possible when they embrace a biblical view of what they have. That's what this guy didn't have. If we embrace... If we come to Jesus letting go of everything and we embrace a biblical view of what God has given us, yeah, it's possible for wealthy people to be faithful followers of Jesus Christ. 
they can have wealth, he gave it to them. They just can't have them. They just can't have them. Only Jesus. Only Jesus can have them. Only Jesus should control them. I know of a few. I mean, honestly, I know of a lot. I know of a lot of people who God's blessed with wealth. Um, faithful followers of Jesus Christ. They're rare. Riches are a temptation. But I know of these people, every single one of them, do you know what's true about them? They steward. They steward everything that they have, everything that God's given them into a tool to do his work. He, he's abundantly showered them with blessings, and you know what they do with it? They use it to abundantly share the gospel in many different ways. It's a beautiful thing to see. It doesn't have them. That's why God gives it to them. It doesn't have them. It never will. Only Jesus has them. And, and, and whatever he's given them, they use it for him. There is such power in this gospel of grace. It can take a person uh, that, that is besought with temptations, may even bondage to sin. It can take people like every single one of us were at one point who have a love for something else, who are controlled by something else, and it can give us new affections, and it gives us new aversions. It gives us new life in Christ, things I used to spend my money on, and I don't do it anymore. I honor God with it now. So yeah, it's possible. With God, all things are possible. There's power in the gospel of grace. I'm glad for that. Look at the promise of the gospel of grace in verses 28 to 31. I love this part here. I laughed when Tanya read it. A little giggle. It says, then Peter began to say unto him, lo, we have left all and followed thee. Notice that word began, because I think Jesus interrupted him. Peter was a talker, and he only got like one sentence out here. Peter began to say this. Peter says, basically, this is what Peter says. Ha ha! All right, well, then we're in Jesus. If we have to leave everything, just what you told this man, we've done it. We've done it, Jesus. The boats are back there. The fishing nets are back there. We left our homes. We've left our families. We've left everything. So we're in, right, Jesus? We're in. We've left it. Jesus, hey, let me get you there. Hold on. Yeah, you have. You have left everything, Peter. Yeah. Verse 29, Jesus answered and said, Verily, truly I say to you, Peter, truly I say to you, Dublin First Baptist Church, there's no man. There is no man that has left house or brethren or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel's sake, but you'll receive a hundredfold in this life, a hundredfold in this time, houses and brethren and sisters and mothers and children and lands and persecutions. You'll get those too, and persecutions. And here's the best part. In the, in the next life, in the next world, you get eternal life. That's what you get when you follow me. So I know what I told that guy, Peter, but Jesus says, you really, you, hold on, Peter. You haven't left anything. <laughs> you, you haven't really lost anything, Peter. Jesus had some work to do with them and to us if this is our, our concept. Look, when you invest in Jesus, there's a promised dividend. There is. I used to watch, when I was watching football games, I don't think they do this anymore, but they used to have like investment commercials for the Hartford and different mutual funds. And this is a really good one. And we'll send you a prospectus. You can look. I don't think people do that anymore either. You just go online and look at how it performed. And the, but then they always say, what do they say? Past performance doesn't guarantee future results. Not here. Does here. When you, when you make an investment in his kingdom, when you use what he has given to you, this, this is all true for you, 29 to 31. Guarantee. Guarantee. 100%. A guaranteed return on investment. I got one house. Man, I'm working on owning it, right? I mean, paying mortgage payments. I like our house. One house. Some of you got two or three. 
I'm glad God's blessed you. Um, once, once you come to faith in Jesus, once you've been born again, once you've been saved by the powerful gospel of grace, once you've been brought into the family of God, not the him, the actual real, you, we are a family. Once that happens, um, yeah, I received a hundredfold houses. So I got one, like it's in my name and the clerk of court. But I've received a hundredfold houses. How? Like, look, if I go home today, if Chris and I would go home on a Sunday and we would get, we'd get home and, and there's been a fire to ashes. I don't have a house anymore, do I? Well, mm, I don't know. Uh, I believe because of what Jesus promises here that some of you would put me and her up for a while, right? No. <laughs> Su casa es not mi casa. What if, I don't, what if I put Moses in the parking lot? Okay, that's a done deal. All right, it was him. He was the detractor there. But no, isn't that the truth? This is what Jesus says. I'll take care of you. I gave you that house. So yeah, I've got one. I I, uh, I left my family. I did for the military, but I left them when I decided to stay down here. I left my family. I don't miss the cold of Wisconsin one bit. I sometimes I miss my people. I do. I see them on Facebook. They come here every once in a while. I, I do. But look, I've gained a hundredfold of family. A hundredfold. Look at this. My goodness, I ain't left a thing. I ain't lost a thing. I've only gained. I've only gained. When you follow Jesus, you only gain. I mean, when you leave this supposed world's treasures and pleasures, when you do what Jesus asked this man to do and he couldn't, when you just let go, when you let loose and you come to Jesus, you get all of this. This is what it's talking about. This is prosperity theology, not that nonsense you hear about name and claim Alexis and all that. This is what you get with Jesus. You can honestly say what the Apostle Paul says in Philippians 3.8, I count all things as loss for the excellence of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord. That's what's best. That's what I've got. And if I've got that, I've got everything. Look, have you, have you ever turned from the things of this world to the Savior of this world? Have you ever confessed your sins to him in prayer, asking Jesus to be your Savior? If you haven't, don't, don't wait. Do it this morning. We're going to have a time of invitation, but you don't even have to wait for that. Look, don't let this moment pass. Don't let um, Jesus leave. Don't leave Jesus. He's here. What is stopping you? What's keeping you from Jesus? Let it go. Go to him. Look, Christian, you who have. You have the Holy Spirit indwelling you, and you can have as much of him as you want. You have an indwelt life, but he wants you to have a spirit-filled life. You can have that, but only if you empty anything that's crept back in. It's taking up room, room that should be his. What's keeping you from Jesus, Christian? What has the Holy Spirit laid his finger on this morning as we studied this together? And he said, it needs to go. That needs to go, so... So there's more room for me in your life. Don't let a wrong view of riches do that. Don't let relationships, earthly treasures, earthly pleasures get in the way of Jesus having all of you and Jesus filling all of you. Man, live in the joy of verses 29 to 31. Don't trade a hundredfold now in this time and eternal life to come for the worthlessness of this world. However, the Holy Spirit has uh, led you this morning. Look, yield to him, obey to him, let go, let loose. Take all of Jesus.